go ahead and take a seat. Uh, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, um, I thank you that we could worship you this morning, Lord. I thank you that even in uh, wretched, nasty, cold, Lord, you are still so good, and that we were able to join together this morning to sing praises to your name, that we're able to worship you, that we're able to hear from your scriptures read aloud, Lord, that we could sit together as brothers and sisters in this very room to give you the glory to remember that uh, you continue to fulfill your promises, that you've given us Jesus as the fulfillment of your promises, that we could have eternal life with you, Lord. I pray that your spirit would just do a beautiful work in our hearts this morning to uh, just make you all the more clearly in, in our own hearts and in our own lives to see that you are the true God, the one true God who is so good, who is so amazing, who is so uh, gracious and merciful and kind to give us eternal life, Lord to spend eternity with you. I pray that that would ring true in our hearts this morning. It's in your beautiful name. Amen. Uh, well, good morning, friends. Um, as many of you guys may know, over about the last 10 years, maybe a little over the last 10 years, there's been this string of movies put out by Marvel that has been one unified story that kind of culminates in the last two movies, right? Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War. And so for years, I personally have been a huge Marvel fan. I, I started going to the very first movie with Iron Man, loved it, and just kind of kept falling in love with the characters as they uh, started to develop these stories, as you start to see the stories kind of come together and then be in similar movies, and you get to grow and have this emotional connection with them, and you start to see it all unfold. And so I was super excited when uh, specifically uh, Infinity War kind of came out. I'm super pumped to just see the culmination of the story and see it all come together in one movie to just wonder what's going to happen next. How is this going to end all together? And so the movie actually ended up coming out on my birthday weekend, and my wife, being uh, as amazing as she is, she said, hey, let's go watch the movie together. So we bought tickets. We pre-ordered them like two months in advance. We go to breakfast the morning of, and as we're sitting at breakfast, we're kind of talking about it, but my wife didn't have the whole story. She wasn't actually as invested to the movies as I was. She hadn't seen all of them. And so we get back into the car to drive over to the movie theater after having Village Inn. And I turn to her and I go, babe, I love you, but do not talk to me once during this movie. And I go, I know you're going to have a lot of questions, but please don't say anything. I just want to like enjoy it and just take it all in. And so I kind of pull up my phone and I YouTube this like eight minute video that gives all the background knowledge that you need to know before you go into this theater. And so she watches the eight minute video because if she just walked into the climax of the entire 10 year string of movies together, she would have walked in and just kind of gone, I, okay, I'm kind of confused. I don't know if I get everything. The, the behind the scenes, the flow of everything led to the climax. And, and so she didn't have that same anticipation that I did. But having the, the background of those eight minutes of that small video that she watched before allowed her to, to kind of uh, blur through the confusion that she might have had if she never would have watched the story. And, and the same is true as we think of the story that God continues to write. 
As we continue to think of, of and see the scriptures that are right before us, we know that the story unfolds all the way at the beginning of Genesis and continues to go all the way through scripture until Revelation. And, and as New Testament believers, as Christians today, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really know the Old Testament well. If we're really honest with ourselves, we, we really just kind of know the life of Jesus, right? That he came, lived a perfect life, was sinless, died and rose on the third day, and we celebrate Easter. But it's kind of like walking into the Avengers movie, walking into Infinity War without the eight-minute video and just kind of going, okay, I see the climax. I see it's great. I, I trust in Jesus, but I don't know if the story has really unfolded for me. Why do they believe things the way they do? How does this all work and tie together? And so we see that the background knowledge, seeing the story that God has written, actually makes it all the more beautiful to see who he really is, to see how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all the things that God's promised to his people. And so today, in Acts chapter 13, Paul walks into a synagogue and gives the history, right? Gives the story of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, and he shares that story and always points to here, he points to the fulfillment of the promises that God gives, and he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, how God is faithful to provide that truth for us today and how it all culminates and climaxes in who Jesus is. And we can't miss this today in Acts chapter 13, that God reveals himself to be a faithful God, that God reveals himself to be one who fulfills all of the promises, that God reveals that nothing can stop him, that nothing can stop him continuing to be faithful to his people. So in Acts 13, we're going to see in three movements how God is faithful through history. Then we'll see that Jesus is the fulfillment. And finally, we'll see that God is faithful through the ministry of Paul. But before we dive in, I'd kind of like to set the stage for us because as we walk through Acts, it can get kind of confusing because it's sometimes really fast-paced and we go, is this the same place we were at last time? Is this not? So uh, open up to Acts chapter 13. I'm going to read the first two verses, 13 through 15, uh, and we're just going to set the context for us a little bit. It says that Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them, and he went back to Jerusalem. They continued their journey from Perga, and they reached Poseidon, Antioch, on the Sabbath day, where they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. So uh, as we start thinking about, okay, where are we? Where was Paul last week? How, how did we get to where we're at? I think we have a map. Um, did we put the map up? Yes. Uh, so the map kind of helps us illustrate to this first missionary journey. So if we think of Acts chapter 13 and 14, this is what we call Paul's first missionary journey. So last week, it started in Antioch, right? Right up here. Then they traveled all the way to Cyprus. And so this week, we're actually going all the way up to Antioch, which is up top. So two different Antiochs. I know it can kind of be confusing, but we see as we wrap through Acts chapter 13 and 14, they'll actually come across and then come back. And so this is a map you can kind of refer to and think, and we just wanted to paint the picture for you because it can get kind of confusing and saying, where are we? Where were we? But here we're in Antioch, and this whole trip is about two years long. From AD 47 to 48 is kind of what we're thinking, and before they get to Antioch, 
we see in the text that John leaves. He, he leaves, and we're just kind of left with, why did that guy leave? What is going on here? And, and there's a couple of different theories of why John, who's actually John Mark, who actually wrote the gospel of Mark that we have today in our Bibles, right? Why did he leave the missionary journey? A couple of theories are that he didn't like Paul's leadership or that he was homesick, that there was complete culture shock as they travel, that, that that the travel was just too much of a sacrifice for him. Regardless of what led Paul or what led Mar- uh, John Mark to leave the missionary journey, we do know that there are some differences between Paul and John Mark, right? We'll see that later in Acts, but we won't get into it too much today. But they go to Antioch, and the first thing they do when they're there is they seek out brothers, right? They go to a Jewish synagogue, and they sit down, and they listen to the sermon. And in uh, their culture that day, it would have been uh, just regular for the rabbis to see someone else who was visiting from a different place who was a Jewish rabbi as well, or a Jewish teacher. And they would have asked them to step up and say, hey, do you have anything encouraging to share with us? Do you have something that's going on or something you want to teach us extra this morning? And so Paul kind of gets a softball kind of tossed right at him. Just kind of like, here you go. So that sets the pace for where we're at today. And Paul stands up, gives this amazing sermon to talk about how God has been faithful through the history of his people. And that leads us to verse 16 at the start of Paul's sermon. So I just want to read through the first section of his sermon really quick. Uh, So starting in verse 16 all the way to 31, it reads this. Paul stood up, motioned with his hand, and said, Fellow Israelites, and you who fear God, listen. The God of the people Israel chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying uh, seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then he asked for a king. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of their tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out my will." From this man, descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, as John was completing his mission, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not the one, but the one is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled their words by condemning him. Through, though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out All that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
So Paul stands up, looks out at the room, and says, friends, I need to tell you about the God that we worship. And in typical preacher fashion, Paul lays out a three-point sermon. So that's why we always do three points. I'm just kidding. That's not why we do three points. Uh, But we kind of see it's kind of neat. But Paul lays out his sermon. And in this first section, he really teases out for the people. He just starts painting the picture and revealing to them that God is faithful. God has been faithful to his people for the entire time. And so he starts in Egypt right when they were slaves in Egypt. And I love that this kind of comes up because as we're in our Bible reading plan as a church, we're actually in Exodus. We started Exodus. We finished Genesis. And so we see that the people are in Egypt because Jacob slash Israel, right, had a son, had 12 sons. And one of them named Joseph, right, gets sold into slavery. He ends up being Pharaoh's right-hand man. And that's how the people get to Israel. But in Genesis 46, God gives a promise to Jacob, and he says this in his promise to Jacob. In verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 46, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. So God gave this promise. Hey, when you go to Egypt, you're going to be there, but I'm going to bring you back. And then he also tells Abraham, he tells Abraham even before that, hey, your people are going to be slaves in a land that's not their own, but I will free them from it, right? Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. He says this to Abraham. He says, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years and in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. What a nice little message from God. Oh, yeah, your people are going to be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. This is God just continuing to show, I have a promise that I'm giving to you. I will be faithful to you. I will save you from slavery. And so Paul reminds them of how God saved them from slavery in Egypt with the Exodus, right? Then he continues on and he says, God was also faithful to you in the wilderness because after the Exodus, after they fleed from Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And while they were wandering, they complained, they grumbled, they weren't happy. They were totally just uh, wicked to God and worshiped other idols. And it says that he put up with them, that God put up with them. And even through all of that, even through their rejection and grumbling, God still gave them their inheritance of the promised land. God continues to be faithful to his promise and gives them what he told them he would. And then once they're in the promised land, we read in the book of Judges, right? that they're there and they're disobedient, that they totally uh, worship other gods, that they forget about the one true God. And and the book of Judges tells us that uh, what led them to their own uh, destruction was themselves. And the very last verse in the book of Judges, we get kind of everything that wraps up in that story. And it says in chapter 21, verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed to be right to him. And so the book of Judges is just this vicious circle of how the people continue over and over and over again to lead to their own destruction, to lead to their own separation from God. Yet God is still so kind because in the book of Judges, we see he does give them judges. 
He gives them people to rule, people to help, people to raise them up out of their darkness and out of those moments, and they continue to just be disobedient time and time again until the prophet Samuel arrives. The prophet Samuel arrives, and we read his story in the book of 1 Samuel, and Samuel is a righteous man, a man who's committed to God, and yet the people still want their own way. As he comes to them, as he tells them, no, you need to trust the Lord, as he commits himself to the Lord, the people are still disobedient. They, they cry out asking for a king like the other nations. Would, would you just give us a king? Would you give us someone to reign and rule so we could look like everyone else? And so they get a king. They choose their own king and this guy named Saul, who, who's an absolute train wreck. And so while they choose their own king, God chooses a different king. And his name is David. And he anoints David, and David waits patiently until the time has come for him to actually be raised up to be the king. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. He's a leader that God rose up, that led Israel, that was a man that meditated on the law that God gave to them. He loved the Lord. He walked in repentance. He did fall short multiple times, and so did Moses, right? The leaders continue to fall short. But through all this history, Paul shares this to show the Israelites, to show the people in the room, God has been faithful to save you time and time and time again and again. And he's been faithful to keep his promises to save you when you were in slavery, to put up with you when you were grumbling in the wilderness, to give you the inheritance that you did not deserve, to protect you with judges and with Samuel, to be faithful to give you a king who he rightfully chose. And God's also faithful to the promise that he gave to David in 2 Samuel. And he gives this promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. The Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In the gospel accounts, when we read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we learn that Jesus is from the line of David, that he's a descendant of David's. And Jesus is this promise coming to fulfillment, that God is faithful to his promise to provide a son from the line of David to sit on the throne for all of eternity, to establish a kingdom forever. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, the forgiver of sins has come, and it's all fulfilled in who Jesus is. And we see that Paul is clearly just trying to draw out for them. Don't you see? God has been faithful over and over and over again. And it all culminates and climaxes with Jesus and who Jesus is and what he has done. And so Paul kind of goes into this next section where he starts not only talking about how faithful God is, but he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment. So let's read the next section of Paul's sermon, verses 32 to 41. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. 
You are my son. Today I have become your father. As to his raising from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purposes in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. Paul doesn't just stop at sharing about how God is faithful, but he continues to show that Jesus is the fulfillment, that Jesus came to bring salvation to his people. And while Jesus walked on earth with them, right, the Jewish leaders just didn't see who he was. They read the stories and the prophecies that were about Jesus clearly, and yet they still rejected him. They denied him. They killed him. They crucified him. They put him in a tomb, and God still rose him from the dead. He defeated sin and death and made sure to fulfill the promise that he gave to us. Verse 32 says that we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. It's all fulfilled because Jesus has been risen from the dead. And he's saying, don't miss out on this truth. Don't you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that have given, have been given? And he continues on. He says, I'm not done yet because I'm not sure you truly understand who Jesus is. Remember the second Psalm that was written hundreds of years before this man was born? Yeah, that, that was about him. Remember those chapters in Isaiah that talk about the crucified servant, right? Yeah, that was about Jesus too. Remember Psalm 16 that promises a kingdom? That's also about Jesus, Brian Vickers, who's a commentator, wrote that Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, all assert that God is faithful in relation to his promise to David, a promise of an everlasting covenant, a promise to make the nations a heritage, the needs of the earth a possession, and a promise to eternal life. Paul starts to end his sermon. He says, okay, we're almost getting there. And then he starts talking about David and how David was a man who loved God, right? In Psalm 16, God promised a king that would not decay. And David was a great king who loved God, yet he fell multiple times, fell into sin, and David died. David perished. David decayed. He was corrupted by sin. But Jesus, Jesus was the one who was raised up. He was the one who did not perish. He was the one who did not decay, who was not corrupted by sin. In fact, he was perfect. He's sinless. He was the one that rose from the dead instead and defeated sin and death. This is the king that we worship. He's contrasting the two to show 
Look, the Messiah is right before you. The prophecies have been foretold, and your eyes need to be open to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, that he's the fulfillment of the law, that he's come to bring salvation. And he, Paul starts talking about the law of Moses. And when we think of the law of Moses, what do we typically think of? The Ten Commandments, right? That's kind of what comes to our mind when we think of the law of Moses. And so when we start thinking of the Ten Commandments, we maybe get this picture or start thinking, okay, if, if I live out the Ten Commandments perfectly, then I'll be declared righteous, then I'll be declared right before God, and I can live in eternity with Him forever. But the truth is that we can't. We cannot live out the Ten Commandments perfectly. And so the people realize this, and so God still graciously gave to them this sacrificial, the sacrificial system where they would offer, where they would sacrifice, whether it was animal or grain or whatever it was to, to cover up their sins, right? To, to be made right with God. And in Romans 10, verse 4, it says that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And so Paul is driving home this fact that they no longer need to make sacrifices, that they no longer need to continue to worry about uh, their own work, that they have to see that the Ten Commandments was not given to them so that they would try to earn their way to God's favor, but that the Ten Commandments were given to them to reveal that they needed a Savior, to reveal to them that they needed to see who God really is and what His standard is. Because if we look at Abraham and we think, okay, you need to live out the Ten Commandments perfectly in order uh, to ha de be declared righteous before God. Abraham didn't live out the Ten Commandments perfectly, yet we know he was still declared righteous. Moses, who gave them the Ten Commandments, he didn't live up to the standard of the Ten Commandments, and yet he was declared righteous as well. And so we see that the Ten Commandments, the law, was never meant to lead to salvation. It was given to show that they needed someone to save them. It was given to show that they were not perfect, that Jesus, that God himself is the one to save, that God himself is the Savior of the world. He points it out clearly in the text. When you read verses 36, or verse 16 to 31, you see over and over again, God chose our ancestors, made the people prosper. He led them out of Egypt. He put up with them. He gave them the inheritance. He gave them the judges. He gave them the king of David, right? God has been the one that's doing all the work, and he's the one who saves. And so Paul's drawing out. It's not about the law. It's about who gave you the law. It's about the one who's come to save you. And it all comes to a climax in Jesus being the fulfillment of all of these promises that they no longer have to try and make these sacrifices to cover up for their sin, but that faith in Jesus, faith in his death and resurrection, it leads to the forgiveness of their sin, that they can be forgiven of all of their sin. And Paul says, don't miss this. Don't miss this because this is the greatest news you could ever hear or receive. The forgiveness of sins has come. And it's a free gift by just trusting in who God is. A free gift by seeing him for what he's done. That the one sacrifice has been paid for the many. That the Son of God came and lived a perfect life, died and rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death. That he was the fulfillment so that we could put our faith and trust in him 
to have forgiveness of our sins. This is the only way to be forgiven. The only way to enter into a relationship with God. The only way to have eternal life and promises with Him. And so this morning, I want to say to you, church, I want to share with you, don't miss this. This is the greatest news that you could ever hear. That sometimes makes no sense, and yet it makes all the sense in the world that God's the one to provide salvation for His people. That we could trust completely in Him for who He is, what He's done, how He continues to fulfill His promises, and how He has fulfilled for our salvation. That we could have eternal life with Jesus. That we could have forgiveness of our sins because of what He's done because how he's moved and how he saved us, that you could have eternal life. And so if you have not given your life over to Christ, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I want to beg you today to not miss out on this, to see that Jesus is the fulfillment, that we can have forgiveness of our sins, that we can't try to earn our way to God, that even as much as we try over and over and over again to try to live out these Ten Commandments perfectly, that it just leads us to see that we need a Savior, that we can't do it, and that Jesus' death and resurrection gives us life, that we can be forgiven of our sin by an amazing, merciful, good God, by simply turning to Him, We know that we're in deep need of salvation through our sin, and we know that we need forgiveness of our sin, but we've been corrupted by sin. Each and every single one of us, all of us, that separates us from God. But Jesus' death and resurrection paid for that sin for us. So would you give your life to Jesus? Would you trust what the prophets have done? This isn't stuff that's made up. This is real and true. These are prophecies that were written about a man that were written hundreds of years before he was even born. And God moved. And God pointed to the one true son who gave us eternal life. Would you turn and trust in who Jesus is? that he could give you new life, that he could set you free from the slavery of your sin and decay, that he could continue to give you a, a generous king, a loving king who invites you into a beautiful relationship with him, eternal life with the one true God. Would you trust in that God today? And if you've already trusted in Christ, I, I want to remind you that the whole picture matters. The whole picture matters. That when we go back and and read about and see how faithful God has been time and time again, it leads us to go, oh my gosh, it is so beautiful that God has been so faithful to his promises over and over and over. And he just continues to be so kind and so merciful while we don't deserve it. He still gives out grace. He still gives out mercy. He still provides salvation for those who never deserve it. And for the Jewish believers, the Old Testament matters, but it also matters for us because it shows their story. But guess what? It also shows our story time and time again, because I want to remind you that when you were a slave to your sin, stuck and trapped in chains that you couldn't get out of, that you felt like you needed to be released from, Jesus freed you from slavery, that Jesus released you from that. And even when you wander and complain and grumble in this world and feel like God still owes you something or feel like he still needs to give you something that you want, that he still puts up with us, that he gives us all the more, more than we deserve, and he still hands us over the beautiful inheritance of everlasting life with him. And 
I want to keep reminding you that when we live life, when you have lived your life in a way that you felt was best, that was right in your own eyes, he was still kind enough to give you a judge and a ruler and a king that satisfied all the needs that you could ever want or desire. A perfect king who sits on the throne, who stepped down from heaven, who does not decay, who does not, uh, is not corrupted by sin, who took the payment of your sin to give you eternal life. That's the king that we have. That's the God that we serve. That he's been faithful time and time and time again. I want to remind you of that truth. Because their story is our story. That we have a God who's freed us from slavery. Who's been with us as we wander. Who gives us a beautiful king who's perfect and good. And invites us to sit at the, sit at the feet of the throne. That's the God that we worship. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. And Jesus offers us eternal life, and that's the king that we serve and the God that we see move in our own hearts. And from Paul's time in Antioch, we can actually learn a few things from him outside of just the sermon that he gave, the beautiful fulfillment story that he preaches to the people there. We can learn a couple of things from Paul. So I actually want to talk about that a little bit, but let's read the last section of chapter 13, starting in verse 42. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters following the Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So a couple of things that we can learn from Paul from this entire time. I actually want to take us back to the beginning uh, of this section, right? In verses 13 through 15. So the first observation of what we can learn from Paul in this section is that he sacrifices for the gospel. Paul makes a sacrifice for the gospel to go forward to the ends of the earth. This is not an easy trip. You guys saw how they trekked, how they sailed from Antioch to Cyprus, then all the way up to Galatia and to Antioch. It's, it's not easy. It's time-consuming. It's time away from families. It's time away from friends, leaving a comfortable place in a church that they love dearly to go to share the good news of Christ with people who don't know it, who have never heard it, also that people would believe. 
Paul sacrifices for the gospel, and that's something that we can see and learn from Paul. Are we sacrificing for the kingdom? Are we sacrificing our uncomfortability to share with someone, to build relationships, to continue to go and be on mission for God's good news to be shared with others so that they would see the forgiveness of sins is available for them, that the free gift of salvation is right before their eyes? Are we making sacrifices for the gospel? The second observation is also in that first section there is that Paul takes the opportunity that was given to him. Paul takes the opportunity that God opens right before his eyes when he sits in the synagogue and the Jewish leaders look to him and say, hey, do you have anything to share with us? And he's just got this softball kind of tossed right in front of him. And, and I'm super encouraged by this, and I'm also really convicted by it, because there have been times in my life where God kind of just like opens a door wide open right in front of me, where someone just starts asking me questions about my faith or my job, and I kind of sit there and I go, well, I could go one or two ways here. I could shy away from it, or I could give them the best news they could ever hear. And sometimes that might happen even in your life, right, where it feels like the doors open and they've mentioned something, and you sit there, and you ponder for a little bit, and go, I think, I think I could share Jesus here. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can just kind of ghost it, because I'm nervous to share it. I feel like I don't know what I'm going to say is going to be right, or I feel like I'm not going to have the answers. And what we can learn from Paul here is that he takes every opportunity that's given to him to share Christ. Are we taking every opportunity that's given to us to share the best news that someone could ever hear with them. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and to give us eternal life. Are we sharing that with others? Uh, then we go to this next section from 42 all the way through the end of the chapter. And we see that after uh, Paul's sermon, he gives them this warning. He says, don't miss this. Don't be like the prophecy that I just read to you. Don't deny Jesus for who he is and what he says. And we see that a week later, the entire city comes back to hear about the best news, to hear this story of this God who, who gives them forgiveness of sin. And the Jews get angry. They get frustrated. They get jealous in their hearts because they see this crowd and they're like, we've been preaching here forever. Our crowd ain't that big. And so they, they don't reject Paul and Barnabas. They reject Jesus. They reject God. And then that leads them to get angry and chase them out of town. But in that, Paul looks at them and says, man, we were supposed to come to you first. God chose us, the Jews, to be God's chosen people, to go to the ends of the earth, to bless the nations, not to sit around with each other, but to bless the nations, to go to the Gentiles, and to tell them of this amazing God. And while you reject him, I'm going to keep being on mission for God. He shares the truth. The, the entire town hears the good news of the gospel. Many are saved and appointed to salvation, as the text says. And while they're chased out of town, they shake the dust off their feet and they keep going. But the third thing that we can learn uh, from Paul and Barnabas here in this section is that, of course, God continues to be faithful to his promise to bring about salvation to the ends of the earth, to bring the good news, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, those who come to hear the greatest news that they could ever hear, that God blesses the nations that the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom of God would not just be a one people group that looks super similar, but people from all different tribes, tongues, and nations. And so as we go, what we can learn from this is, are we just trying to make our own personality one kingdom? 
Are, are we trying to make the kingdom of God just look like us? Or are we seeing that the good news is for everybody? People who look different than us, people who speak a different language, who, who work and live in a different neighborhood, who continue to, are, are we going to the ends of the earth? Are we truly seeing that God's kingdom is for people of all different skin colors, languages? The kingdom of God is filled with people from all over the world. And the final thing that we learn from Paul here is that there is nothing that can rob us of our joy. And there is nothing that can stop God from his mission. Because as Paul goes and as he's kicked out of town, and I picture like pitchforks and fire and people like chasing after him, there's nothing that stops the mission of God moving forward. Because guess what? Even though they were persecuted, even though they were ran out of town, people were still saved and the gospel was still preached. There is nothing that stops God from moving. There is nothing that stops God from saving people. There is nothing that can get in God's way from saving more people time and time again. He shows us over and over again, if we preach, he will be faithful to save. And you may share Christ with someone and they might not come to faith right in front of you there. And you may go your entire entire life sharing Jesus with others and sharing the gospel. And you may never actually see someone come to faith right before you. But God is still faithful in those moments because you planted seeds and the gospel was still preached. And we can trust God to do the saving because he's the one that saves. And we can trust that our God has been faithful time and time again to move in our lives and in the lives of others. And we can trust that he's going to continue to save, whether it's right before our eyes or years after we're long gone and with him. Nothing can get in the way of our God. Nothing can stop our God from continuing his mission forward. No opposition, no criticism, no persecution, no obstacle. There is no denial or no rejection of the good news of the gospel that's going to stop him from saving others. Nothing can get in his way because he's faithful. He's fulfilled the promises. And we see that he desires to use us to be on mission for his glory and for his kingdom. And we know that his promises are always yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we say amen to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you've showed us time and time again that you were faithful, that you've showed us over and over and over that you're still so good to be faithful to your promises and to continue to uh, just lavish upon your grace and your mercy over us, God, that you continue to say, uh, these are my people and I will move with them and I will save more. Lord, I pray that you would continue to just move and stir up in our hearts an affection for you to see how good you are, how, you, how you've saved us, how you've redeemed us and how you desire to use us and how you're going to continue to save more, to bring about a blessing to the nations, to make your kingdom, your people as numerous as the stars. Oh God, we pray that you we would see you save more people. We pray that we would see your faithfulness each and every single day in our lives, Lord. Would we see you for who you are? Would we see the whole story unfold before our eyes? And would you become more beautiful in our own hearts? We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.